It's good to see you guys. What a great week. What an incredible week. I love you. I love this church. But more importantly, God loves us. We're here because God loves us so much so that he sent his son to die for us. And I love that on some level we're willing to die for one another and serve one another. What a, what a privilege. What a joy. Um, I love all the missionary stuff that's happening in this church. I mean, we are going from you know, zero to 60 pretty fast, and I dig it, and you guys are responding incredibly well. I, I just joked with, I just joked with Jill because I've encouraged her this way. I says, I love that you're not afraid to ask for anything. And we shouldn't be afraid to ask for anything, and the Lord will move accordingly, right? We can't be afraid to ask. And every time we do, you guys just respond. The church is responding to the needs of these families, and it's just so touching to me. Thank you so much. We had a team of seven, I think, that landed in Honduras yesterday. And it, it appears that shortly after they landed, Ryan Polk, who's heading up that team, sent me a, an email, a letter. I don't know if you... I'm going to read it to you guys. Um, I got it yesterday morning. Because I think they left late Friday night. Is that right? Ryan Polk says this. He says, Dear brothers and sisters in California, thank you is not enough to express our gratitude for your support and encouragement as we serve on your behalf in Honduras this week. For the next seven days, through your expression of love and sacrifice in the name of Jesus, we will be sharing in Jesus' mission to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners. By the time worship starts on Saturday night in Anaheim Hills, we will have constructed beds that give homeless teenagers a comfortable place to sleep off of the streets and in the safety of the Breaking Chains Ministry in Tegucigalpa. Please continue praying for us as we go through this week together. On Monday, two families will replace their piece-together shanties with new homes. Children who used to sleep in the dirt can rest on an elevated wooden floor. Their mom will have a new chore to give them. Sweep the floor. And won't they love hearing that? Tuesday, moms who are standing beside their children in the state hospital hoping for help and praying for miracles will receive a touch of dignity and a ration of essential items through the 60 blessing bags that we collectively donated as you guys um, took that on. We will close our week at the Didasco Children's Home playing and laughing with 25 orphaned sons and daughters of our king who are desperate for the love of a mother and father. While you are praying for us, we are praying for you. Prayers of gratitude and for unity in our shared purpose to follow our risen King. Again, thank you. We are eager to be home with you next weekend. Grace and peace to you in the name of Jesus. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Just good stuff, man. God is so good. Alright, so we're in Ezra. We kind of painted some big picture stuff last week. I'm going to do a little bit of review from last week in case you weren't here. All right? A little bit of review from last week. I'm going to add a few more things because I just can't help myself. And then we're going to jump into Ezra 1. I'm so excited. Oh, I'm so excited. So good to be with you guys. Love you so much. So, by way of review, Ezra and Nehemiah go together. Ezra and Nehemiah go together. The purpose of Ezra and Nehemiah is to show the numerous ways that God was faithfully at work to restore the people of Israel to their land after they were exiled out of their land to Babylon. God providentially brought favor with the Persian kings and helped the Israelites overcome obstacles as they rebuilt the temple and reestablished the word of God within that temple. 
which was the law of Moses. Ezra focused on the spiritual components of the rebuild, and Nehemiah focused on the physical components of the rebuild. Their efforts to reform the life of the Hebrew city, Jerusalem, were rooted in a nationalistic sense of pride for the tradition of of their Hebrew forefathers and a genuine concern for the reputation of the name of their God in the midst of pagan opposition, which is such a desire and passion of mine for the church today that we would have a, 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 a deep concern, a genuine concern and desire to protect the name of our God. And we do that in how we live individually, but more importantly, we do that in how we live collectively as a church community to protect the name of our God in the community that we live in as followers of Jesus Christ. Ezra and Nehemiah recount the restoration of four things. And it will be on the screen if you remember this from last week. That in Ezra chapters 1 through 6 is about the restoration of the temple. And then in 7 through 10 it's the restoration of the community, of the people that needed to be cleansed from their sins and, 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 and seeking forgiveness of their sins. And then the restoration of Jerusalem, their city, in Nehemiah 1 through 7. And then the covenant the restoration of the covenant between God and His people, that they were a chosen people to carry out His purposes and His work amongst the nations. Ezra and Nehemiah, if you recall, uh, talked about three different returns from captivity. So there was three deportations, and there was also three returns. Ezra 1 through 6 talks about phase 1 of the return. Phase 2 is Ezra chapter 7 through 10, and phase 3 is all of Nehemiah. We also see in the books of Ezra and and Nehemiah God's providential rule of human history. And I mentioned these last week, but I didn't put them on the board. So if you want all those verses, take a snapshot with your camera. I think you can get these online once the sermon posts. But we see the hand of God, if you remember that from last week. All those verses in Ezra 7, 6, 7, 9, 7, 27, and 28, 8, 18, 8, 22, 8, 31, Nehemiah, right? That we saw the hand of God working on Ezra and Nehemiah. And then we saw that God orchestrates kings and empires. In Ezra 1.1, that God stirred in the heart of Cyrus. In Ezra 6.22, God moves in the heart of Darius. In Ezra 7.27, God moves in the heart of King Artaxerxes. And then in 9.9, he mentions that he moved in all the kings. And then we see the fulfillment of prophecy at the end of Chronicles that we read last week. How God was fulfilling prophecy by what he was about to do by sending his people back to Jerusalem. And so we see God's providential rule in human history. Here's how I would say it, church, is this. When we understand God more clearly, when we recognize how much God is in control, how big our God is, how powerful He is, the more I get to know Manny, the better relationship I can have with Manny. The more I get to know about God, the better relationship I can have with God. And Ezra and Nehemiah is a chance for us to understand more of who God is so we can come into a better understanding of how to live with Him and how to live amongst His people and how to live amongst the nations. It's just an incredible story. God's probably very big to us. My expectation is after today and after Ezra, He will be that much bigger and we can come alongside Him that much better. Amen? So, the exile, when they were exiled... The exile serves theologically not only as God's punishment of his people, but also his purging and purification of Israel. Sometimes the Lord feels like punishment, but what he's really doing is he's purifying us and he's purging us of some ugly stuff. There's some ugly stuff that needed to be purged out of my life. Some things went quicker than others. And some things are still kind of lingering. But God loves us and he purges and he purifies us so that we can have that much, of a, uh, that much more of a healthy relationship with him and with others. And 
so God allows us to be purged and purified. So the exile also serves to help them recognize that they, Israel, is or was the covenant people of God, whom the Lord must constantly remind and restore as a separate people. And then we looked at 1 Peter 2, 9, right? That you and I, it's no different. Things haven't changed. What he did in Ezra is what he's doing with us, that you and I, were a chosen race. Like it or not, that's part of the deal. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you and I may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We have a responsibility. The people who are in Honduras are doing exactly this. We need to do it here. We need to do it in Honduras. We need to do it to the missionary families that we support and serve. We have a responsibility as the nation of Israel did in the Lord. Make sure that we understand what that responsibility is. Okay, so I can't help it. Here's a timeline that I think is kind of helpful. 605 B.C., that's when the first Jewish exiles were deported to Babylon. And then eight years later, there was a second deportation. And then 11 years after that, a third deportation. And that's when Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And then in 539, Cyrus takes over the uh, Babylonian Empire, and it's now the Persian Empire. And then he issues his decree to the Jewish exiles that they can go back. And so about 50,000 Jews return in 537. And then they lay the foundation of the temple, and then sure enough, in that same year, the work is interrupted because of opposition. Which is so interesting that God works, he prophesies, then he finally lets them go back, and they start the work, and then opposition happens. And I'm sure they said, now what, God? And that's just the way life is sometimes. For God's reasons that are far above ours. We obey, we follow, He decrees, we, we go, and then there's this stalling, this opposition. And we think, what's that about? But God knows what that's about. But His promises are still true and the work must continue. And so 16 years later, the work on the temple is resumed. And that's where you see the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, which is in the minor prophets. The Bible has 12 minor prophets and 5 major prophets. And so that's where the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah is. And then in 515, the temple is completed. And then all the way down in 458 B.C., Ezra arrives. Ezra the scribe, the man of God, the man of God's word. Look at 538. From 538, when Cyrus decreed, it's 80 years later before Cyrus shows up. 80 years. God's true to his word, but sometimes his timing is not what we want it to be or think it should be. And then 14 years later, in 444 B.C., Nehemiah arrives and the wall is rebuilt and the gates are restored. Let's pray. God, it's incredible to see your handiwork amongst your people. You're doing the same thing today, Lord, if we would but pay attention. Lord, you give us these stories so that we can know you more and we can serve you better. We can come alongside you more effectively. But God, you're in control. We serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are an incredibly great God and you are sovereign and you're providential and you rule and nothing's too big for you. God, help us to know you more so we can come alongside you better. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your plans for us. Thank you, Lord, that you use us and you purify us and you purge things out of us so that you can have your way with us. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. All right.
Um, as you can tell, I'm kind of having a good time with this. So here's another outline. This is important. So this is, this is the whole book of Ezra. Ezra has ten chapters, right? So the first six chapters of Ezra, we see the nation being restored. Okay? And then the last four chapters, we see that the people are going to be rededicated. And so the first part, in chapters 1 and 2, is that we see some people return with Zerubbabel and Joshua. They return to Jerusalem. And then the temple is being rebuilt in chapters 3 through 6. The work begins in chapter 3. It's opposed in chapter 4. It's resumed in chapter 5. And it's completed in chapter 6. I think that's kind of cool. And then the people are rededicated. A second group comes back with Ezra in chapters 7 and 8. And then they confess their sin. And then, of course, God who says that whoever is willing to confess their sins, he is faithful and just to uh, forgive them of their sins. And so he cleanses them of their sin. The theme of Ezra is this, that God, check this out, God used pagan kings, he used godly leaders, he used common people, and he used prophets to restore his people by reinstituting temple worship and reviving the law of Moses. Our God uses anything and everything to accomplish His purposes, to restore His relationship with us and ours with Him. Thanks be to our God, right? We, church, we serve a God of restoration. We serve a God of restoration. What might He want to restore in you? What might God want to restore in you? What in your life right now needs to be reinstituted or revived in your life? I got saved at 15, 37 years ago, and 52 now, and I remember the deep, deep, deep passion I had for God. I was so excited to be saved. And I thought everybody in my high school would be excited for me. Not so much. I went from having tons of friends to not so many. I was the only known professed Christian in my public high school of 2,000 people. I was a leper, and I couldn't care less. I was so in love with God. And then sometimes through the years, some of that dissipates and goes away, and we've got to get corrected. And God shows us those things that need to be reinstituted or revived to restore that kind of relationship with Him. And I'm so glad that God keeps doing that in my life and keeps doing that in my life. And He's probably doing it in some of you now. He's probably done it many times in the past. But the question is, what needs to be revived or reinstituted in your life to bring that kind of relationship back with God? Whatever it takes, right? Some important verses before we get into Ezra 1. We've got to go uh, three, three verses. Two in Jeremiah, one in Isaiah. Let's go to the first one. Go to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah is going to be to the right of Ezra. You'll have the Psalms, the Proverbs, um, I think the uh, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, and then Isaiah, and then Jeremiah. You guys probably found it before I was even done talking. Jeremiah 25. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. Our God is so good. Our God is so big. Our God is so great. Our God is so powerful. Our God is so worthy of praise. Verse 1 of chapter 25 in Jeremiah. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning the people of Judah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying this, From the thirteenth year of Josiah son of Ammon, king of Judah, up to this day, these 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. Imagine, sorry Manny, but imagine if for 23 years, every day, for 23 years, I told Manny, this is what God has for you. 
This is what God has for you. Manny, this is what God has for you. Manny, this is what you need to do. And nothing. Nothing. Oh, that must just grieve the heart of God. But he kept doing it. He kept doing it. That's what's happening. Verse 4, And the Lord has sent you all his servants, the prophets, besides Jeremiah, again and again, but you have not listened. You haven't even inclined your ear to hear. And you say, saying, turn now, everyone, from his evil way. That's what the prophets were saying. Turn from your evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. And I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. My servant, he calls him, a pagan king is his servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Verse 12, And then it will be that when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. And that nation declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, I will make it an everlasting desolation. I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. Okay, turn to Jeremiah 29. We've got to look at those verses as well. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when those 70 years have been completed in your exile in Babylon, I will visit you to fulfill my good word to you, to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. And then lastly, look at Isaiah, which is to your left. Isaiah, the last verse of chapter 44. And then the first seven verses of chapter 45. Isaiah 44, 28 through 45, verse 7. Isaiah 44, starting at verse 28, the last verse. The Lord declares through Isaiah, He says, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. This is the Cyrus that we're talking about in Ezra. He's my shepherd, the Lord says of a pagan king. And he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem that she will be built or rebuilt. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand 
to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you, Cyrus, and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my people, and Israel, my people, I have also called you by your name and have given you a title of honor, he says to Cyrus, though you have not known me. I'm the Lord. There's no other. Besides me, there's no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Praise be to our God. We serve an incredible God. Church, check this out. Here, in what we just read in Isaiah, Isaiah refers to Cyrus by name. 150 years before Cyrus sends the Jews back to Jerusalem. He wasn't even born. And God calls him out by name. Is that awesome? God used these prophecies to keep Israel's faith alive during those years. God used His Word, these prophecies, to keep His people's faith alive during these years. Do we do the same? Do we allow God's Word to keep our faith alive when things seem to be dark, when things seem to be slow, when things seem to be not happening, do we rest on God's Word? I've been married 29 years to my wife. This summer will be 29 years. It took me a long time. She had to teach me this. Whenever I'd get twisted or I wasn't sure what God was doing, she would say, what does His Word say? Like, you need to go to His promises. You need to rest on His promises. Every time. And whenever I'd whine about something, oh, you know, oh, she wouldn't let me whine. She would point me to God's Word every time. Every time. And I appreciate that. She wasn't that nasty about it. That's just the way I heard it. She was way, she was way more loving. I, but I, I, and I didn't always like it. It's like, don't direct me to God's Word. I want to whine about it for a while. I want to be validated that God's against me. You know what I mean? And she's like, no, God is for you. That's what His Word says. I love my wife. Do we allow God's Word to keep our faith alive? Oh, we must. Oh, we must. So, our outline for Ezra chapter 1. Our outline for Ezra chapter 1. Pretty simple. There's a proclamation in those first four verses of Ezra. Okay? And then there's a provision. Cyrus makes a proclamation, but really it's God making the proclamation. And so if God makes a proclamation, he's going to provide for whatever he proclaimed. Amen? That's just the way it works. All right, I have no idea. Well, okay, there's Ezra. I lost Ezra for a little bit. I found him. He's good. Okay, so let's read the first four verses of Ezra chapter 1. You guys ready? Verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout 
all his kingdom. Oh, and he also put it in writing. And it says this, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live in my kingdom, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of the God, uh, for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. So, on the surface, we might think that Cyrus is a good guy, and I'm not saying he's not, but he is a pagan king. And we think, oh, Cyrus, he's Cyrus, he's so sympathetic. Check it out. Cyrus's sympathy was politically motivated. That's just the reality. It's politically motivated. He wanted to establish strong and loyal buffer states around his empire. So if he allowed them to go back and to serve their gods, it was better for his kingdom, his empire. And what I love about that is it's amazing to me how God can use impure motives to accomplish his purposes. God can use impure motives to accomplish his purposes. And so often we experience people with impure motives and we want to correct them. And God says, I have it under control. I can use people with impure motives. Oh, but God, they're really impure. God's like, I get it. I can do it. God can use us even with our impure motives. He can use other people even with their impure motives to accomplish His purposes. Yeah, He's that good. God can do that. And what's also amazing to me is that because of that reality, that we can trust things to God. We can trust things to Him. When we see things happening and things don't make sense, we can trust that God's in control. Does that make sense? Right? Trust those things to Him. He can handle it. And just wait and watch as God performs whatever it is that He desires to perform, of course, in His timing. So, these Verses make me ask the question, where is our focus? In these four verses, where is our focus? There's two kings in verses 1 through 4. There's two kings. Who's one of them? Cyrus. He's the king of what? Persia. Who's the other king? God. There's two kings in verses 1 through 4. The first king is the king of P.E., of the P.E., and the second king is the king of the P.E. The first king is the king of the Persian Empire. That's Cyrus. The second king, God, is the king of people everywhere. That's what is shown in these four verses. You have the king of the Persian Empire, and then you have the king of people everywhere. Let me, let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. Look in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, <laughs> right? We, we think this is about Cyrus. We think this is about Persia. We're missing the whole story. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. God's at work. He's about to fulfill the word that he spoke years before. Look also in verse 1. So what did he do? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Oh, so right. So this is the king of people everywhere. He stirs up in Jeremiah. He stirs up in Cyrus. The Lord stirred up in Cyrus, the spirit of Cyrus, so that he would send a proclamation. And then he also put it in writing. And look in verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me. It's the Lord who has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. 
We don't need to focus on the king of the Persian Empire. We need to focus on the king of people everywhere. And then also in verse 2 it says, And he has appointed me. God gave me a responsibility. He's appointed me to build him a house. We serve the God, the king of people everywhere. We serve the king of people everywhere. Jehoshaphat said the same thing in Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 20 verses 5 and 6 where he says, uh, When he stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? The same title that Cyrus refers to God as, which means he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and there's nobody greater than God. And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Jehoshaphat got it. Cyrus got it. A godly man and then a pagan man both understood that He is the God of heavens. We, indeed, refer to our God as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, do we not? Therefore, does it not make sense that even those who do not know Him still serve Him? Does it not make sense that even those who don't know Him serve Him? Cyrus didn't know God the way we know God, but yet he still serves Him. Because what does Scripture say? That every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Mm. God's in control. These verses also reveal that our God is thorough. Verses 1 through 4, that our God is thorough. Check it out. Cyrus did two things. He sent a proclamation, right? That's what it says in verse 1. He sent a proclamation throughout all His kingdom. And what else did it say He did? He also did what? He also put it in writing. He sent a proclamation. Everybody, and then throughout the entire kingdom, he proclaims it, but he also put it in writing because God is thorough. And it went out to what part of his kingdom does it say? To all his kingdom. He proclaims it, he puts it in writing, and he makes sure that everybody hears it because God is thorough. Reminds me of Romans 1.20. Many of us know this verse. In Romans 1.20 where it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that everyone, the whole kingdom, is without excuse. So this is God's proclamation of who He is. Just like Cyrus proclaimed it. But what did Cyrus also do? He put it, what? In writing. So did our God. God proclaims it, but He put it in writing. Our God is thorough. God proclaims it, and He puts it in writing. Uh, Love that. These verses also show me that our God is focused. Our God is focused. He's thorough and He's focused. There's 11 verses in Ezra chapter 1. Five times in those 11 verses the house of the Lord is mentioned. Five times he mentions the house of the Lord, 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 the house of the Lord. Lord. Verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 7 mention the house of the Lord. Just one house. Where is that house? Jerusalem, right? They're going to go rebuild that house. Five times, one house in an average side city city called Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. Now we're going to compare this because there's an interesting contrast. 
Five times, one house. God mentions that he's focused, right? He mentions that house five times, but it's one house in Jerusalem. And look at verse 2. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given what? All the kingdoms of the earth to Cyrus. Why isn't God interested in all the kingdoms of the earth? Why is he interested in just one house? Isn't this ultimately what the Lord wants? This house is about God being with his people and his people being with him. That's all God wants from us. He's not interested in the kingdoms of this world, all the kingdoms that he gave to Cyrus. Who cares? He gave, he can take. But his concern, his focus is in that one house. His concern, his primary focus is to be in relationship with us and us with him to restore what was broken. Our God is so focused. He's so focused. The house is about God being with us and His people being with Him. And so our real politics, if you will, are heavenly, not earthly. Our real priority must be prayer and not presidents or kings or rulers. Amen? Without the temple, without the temple, there could be no sacrificial system. This was still a time of sacrifices being made for sin. And so, without the temple, there could be no sacrificial system, which was the nation's lifeblood in their relationship to God. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. We're going to skip that for now and get to that later. So, our second stanza, the provision. The provision. Let's read verses 5 through 11. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit... God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, gold, uh, with goods, with cattle, with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. And King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. Oh Lord, help us. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them back out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was their number. There was 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls and a second kind, of, of a second kind, and then 1,000 other articles. All the articles totaled 5,400. And Sheshbazar brought them up uh, with the exiles who went from Babylon back to Jerusalem. If you like math like I do, these don't add up to 5,400, just so you know. Keep hitting your calculator, you're not going to get to 5,400. Don't let that bother you. The very last thing where it says, and a thousand other articles, is really like saying, and a bunch more stuff. The major things are listed first, the minor things are just kind of lumped all together, and a thousand other things. And so the total is 5,400. Okay, so just in case you're a math person, you find that stuff fun. I couldn't sleep until I got that figured out, but I'm, I'm okay now. Here's, what, here's, here's the lesson in all that. We talked about the outline that as God proclaims, He also provides. Our Lord provides according to how He proclaims. Our Lord provides according to how He proclaims. So my wife's been teaching me for 29 years. If God promises it, He'll provide for it. If He proclaims it, He'll provide for it. Our Lord provides according to how He proclaims. Check it out. Look at verse 4. Right? This is the proclamation, right? This is when Cyrus is making the proclamation. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, goods and cattle, and a free will offering. Okay, now here's the provision in verse 6. 
Silver, gold, goods, cattle, and a freewill offering at the very end of verse 6. Everything that he proclaimed in verse 4 was provided in verse 6. Our Lord provides according to how he proclaims. When we partake in God's word, do we do so with the understanding and the faith that our God provides as he proclaims? When we partake in his word, do we trust and do we have faith and do we understand that God will provide as he proclaims? Or do we say, gosh, that sounds good, but that doesn't really apply to me. God hasn't done that in my life. If we're not doing that, then we need to align ourselves differently in how we engage God in his word and we need to confess that. Because it's an act of rebellion. It's not trusting God for what he claims to be true. We're declaring not to be true. What Cyrus did 2,500 years ago reminds us today that God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his word. Amen? For at least 40 years, Jeremiah warned Israel that they would be exiled because of their sin. 40 years. 4-0. For 40 years, Jeremiah warned Israel that they would be exiled because of their sins. And what happens sometimes is we, 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 we have this lie that we believe. That when our Lord is being patient and kind, that things must be fine. And life continues as it is. And we ignore the warnings of God. We ignore what He's telling us because, well, nothing bad's really happening. God is, it says that it's his, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So God extends His grace and His kindness. Look at Second Peter 3, 3-4. through 4. This is the warning that even, it's not just in the Old Testament, but the New Testament. He says, know this, Peter writes, first of all, that in the last days... People will mock God. Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And they're going to say, where is the promise of this Jesus in his second coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, uh, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Ouch. Sometimes we do that. We think, eh, I'm not walking with God. Eh, I'm not being obedient. Eh, I'm not going to pay attention to that. Nothing's really changed in my life. It's God's kindness. It's his goodness towards us. It's His grace towards us. So we need to be careful because God will provide according to what He proclaims. Okay, so I wonder, don't raise your hand, but I wonder if any of us have experienced or been tempted to say that the Lord is not being faithful to His Word. I just wonder. We had moments where we go, yeah, God's not faithful. It says here and the opposite's happened to me. 1 Kings, 8, 1 Kings 8, verse 56 says this, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to His people Israel, according to all that He promised. Not one word has failed of all His good promise, which He promised through Moses, His servant. Not one word. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 24, verse 35, where Jesus says, Hey man, heaven and earth, that'll pass. But my words will never pass. What I declare, I will also deliver. That's the God we serve. Turn to Joshua chapter 23. Joshua's to the left of Ezra. It's after the book of Deuteronomy. After the book of Deuteronomy, you'll find Joshua. And this is the very end. It's Joshua's uh, farewell address. He's about to die. There's only 24 chapters in Joshua, and this is chapter 23. Verses 14, 15, and 16. 
Now behold, Joshua writes, today I'm, I'm going to go uh, the way of all the earth. I'm going to pass away. And you know in all your hearts, you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you, not one word has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Verse 15. It shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until He has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which He commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you will perish quickly from off the good land which He has given you. Hmm. So here's the note that we have to be careful with. Note to self. God's timing must not be confused with His faithfulness. And that ends up being the breakdown. We confuse God's timing with God's faithfulness. Just because something hasn't happened doesn't mean it's not going to happen. We serve a timeless God. Scripture says that a thousand years is but a day and a, and, a, and a day is but a thousand years. He's timeless. He doesn't think or operate in the same time frame that we do where we count days and weeks and months and years. That's nothing to the Lord. So we must not confuse God's uh, timing with His faithfulness. When we, going back to Ezra, when we read verse 4, the provision, right, that, the proclamation, and then the provision in verse 6, did you see anything extra in verse 6? Anybody see anything extra when we read those things? It's okay if you didn't. Look at verse 4 again. That they were, the proclamation was that they were to be supported. The people going back were to be supported with silver and gold, goods and cattle, and a free will offering. Look at verse 6. You have silver and gold, goods and cattle, and a free will offering. But after cattle, there's something called and with valuables. Something a little extra. God proclaimed certain things in verse 4. And he met all those things and some more things and some valuables. And it reminds me of Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. What a great verse. This is our God that we serve. Now to him who was able to do... Look at, look at this string of words. It's one of my favorite things in Scripture. He's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Whatever you can think of, God says, ah, that's nothing, because I can do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. According to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. God provided even more abundantly than what He proclaimed in verse 4. That's the God that we serve. And all things will be restored to our God. And sometimes we lose sight of that. We wonder, is God in control? Does God know what He's doing? All things will be restored to God. Check out verses 7 and 8. King Cyrus brought out all the articles because Nebuchadnezzar had taken them away and he put them in the house of, of pagan gods. And Cyrus brings them back out through Mithridath, the treasure, and he gives them to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, to take back to Jerusalem. And I just love it because it's both an ugly shame and a beautiful picture of our Lord's possessions in the hands or in the control of the world, if you will. And we wonder, is God in control? God's in control. Even when his stuff seems to, be, seems to be belonging or owned by somebody else, God can restore it just like that. The Lord controls the treasures of the earth. Look at Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world 
and those who dwell in it. Praise be to our God. Look at Psalm 89.11. The heavens are yours, the psalmist declares. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. Hmm. In conclusion, we see that God is faithful to His covenant. That's what He wants us to see, that He's faithful to His covenant. In spite of their sins, these exiles were God's chosen covenant people. In spite of our sins, we are His chosen covenant people. God is so good. He's so patient. And He called the Jewish nation to bring blessing to all the earth. And He was going to see to it that they would fulfill their mission. And so through the nation of Israel, the world would receive three things. And this is why they must be restored. The world would receive three things. One, the knowledge of the one true and living God. That's the first thing. The second thing is the written word of God. And the third thing, of course, is Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Because, Scripture says in John 4.22, it says that salvation is from, anybody know the rest of it? Is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. So he needed to restore his people so that people would have the knowledge of the one true and living God, the written word of God, and the promised Messiah because salvation is from the Jews. As God did under Moses and under Joshua, God was now carrying out another exodus. Right? Moses and Joshua led him out of their bondage in Egypt. And now God's leading them out of their bondage in Babylon. And that's a pattern in Scripture, isn't it? It's a pattern of Scripture. We sin, we wind up in bondage, and God delivers. And then we sin, we wind up in bondage, and God delivers. And then we sin, we wind up in bondage, and God delivers. Remember when I said earlier that the sacrificial system of the temple was the lifeblood of their relationship to God? Well, in showing that, it shows us that that's a reality, that a sacrifice is needed. Because Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Our sin can't be taken away. And so God is showing us, He's kind enough to show us that reality, that sacrificial system. There's a sacrifice that needs to be made for my people to have a relationship with me. And ultimately, where did that sacrifice come? In Jesus Christ. And so he shows us that we're in bondage, but he will deliver us from Egypt. And then we go back into sinning, and we go back into bondage, and so then he exiles us to Babylon, and then he delivers us from Babylon. And then we go back to sinning, and then he delivers us ultimately through the sacrifice, the sacrificial system of his own son, Jesus Christ. Is that amazing? God is good. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close our time together. Let me pray for our time, and if you need prayer after the service, our prayer team is available to my left. Thank you for being here, you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday. The Lord loves you. God is good. Let's pray. God, we, we're blown away. We see, Lord, more clearly now your thumbprint on everything and on everyone. God, may we trust that that is indeed your thumbprint as we get to know you more and recognize how you work. May we trust you with everything. May we trust everything to you. God, have your way with us. Thank you for restoring your faithful people. Thank you, Lord, that we can continue the work that you have called the nation of Israel to. Lord, we love you. And we praise your mighty name. In Jesus' name, and everyone said.